0: Chapter 20 of The Ghost Girl by Henry Kitchell Webster. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 20 The Watchers and the Watched. He moved a little nearer still. You're really quite safe now, he said. We're friends. Mr. Drew here is a lawyer from New York, and I'm Arthur Jeffrey already the terror had begun to go out of her eyes at his name i thought i saw a little glint of recognition you're miss meredith aren't you he asked miss claire meredith she nodded dumbly Geoffrey moved a little nearer but seeing the way she shuddered he stopped short it isn't fear she said forming the words stiffly and with difficulty it's cold i've been in the river at that i shuddered too but not with cold i was thinking of the other girl they had found in the river yes the other girl it must have been another after all for this girl was alive and real the blue pallor was disappearing from her white face in the river Geoffrey repeated you fled into the river to get away from something she nodded and her eyes widened a little we'd had a touch of the river ourselves he said and we haven't a boat but there'll be one presently but why are you here she asked here on hog island of all deserted places in the world and at this time on a march morning we were on our way to be chill said Geoffrey. we were coming up the river in a motorboat the gasoline gave out so we landed on the island and started off on foot we were planning to swim the rest of the way you were going to be chill she asked and now alarm lighted up in her eyes again are you friends of dr crows her voice died on the last words and she uttered them with a whisper no said Geoffrey soberly we were going there to try to save you from him but i'm afraid we shouldn't have been in time if you hadn't come to meet us she shivered again no she said simply you wouldn't have been in time but but how did you know that i was in this country at all or even alive and how did you know i had to be saved from him it will take a long time to answer all those questions said Geoffrey. just now there's something more profitable to do she made a move as if to rise but sank back again with a twinge of pain i'm afraid i can't do much she said Geoffrey went off a few paces and came back dragging the branching end of the limb i had crashed through on my way downhill he placed it in front of the rock i want your overcoat to drew he said and when I gave it to him, he threw it over the branch in a way that screened the cave entrance fairly elusively. Then he took off his own coat, a big fur-lined affair, and handed it to the girl. "'Take off some of your wet things,' he said. "'The more the better. Then put on my overcoat. Drew and I are going to build a fire.' the thing to do is to get you warm and comfortable before the cold has time to strike in any further you will find a flask in one of my pockets he added with a little brandy in it most of it has already been drunk by the man you frightened out of his wits in the beech hill house to-night she made some demur about accepting our overcoats but jeffrey's quiet authority didn't allow any real resistance we're only wet part way up he said and we're going to get warm rustling firewood i hope she said you won't have to go very far away to get it we'll stay within call all the time said jeffrey firewood wasn't especially easy to find at that time of the year and after last night's rain but we kicked open a couple of rotted stumps and got a quantity of dry punk out of the inside once alight that sort of stuff would burn almost anything we collected our fagots on the crest of a little hill just beyond the cave and we kept some sort of talk going all the while for the girl to hear it wasn't wonderful that she should not want to be left alone after what she had been through that night presently we heard her call i'm ready now have you found anything at all in this soggy place that will burn her voice was entirely unlike the dead colourless monotone she had spoken in before her recovery spoke wonders for her spirit and resiliency Geoffrey has many accomplishments and perfections but i have one in which i excel him i can build a fire perhaps his possession of so many advantages makes it all the more remarkable that he should recognize mine he did anyway and sat down beside claire i have begun calling her that already and watched in silence until my task was completed, and a bright, well-fed blaze was making us all more comfortable. It wasn't until I had finished with the fire that I found leisure to look at her. When I did, I could have exclaimed aloud over the difference. The pallor was gone from her cheeks, a faint flush of delicate color was coming into them, and her eyes it didn't seem possible that those could be the same eyes that had stared at us in terror so short a while ago as for her hair her great wonderful masses of hair well it was evident that Geoffrey was looking at that too but Geoffrey with all his temperament, and his intuitions, and the rest of his artistic equipment, has a disconcerting way of being exceedingly practical when you least expect it. "'You ought to take that down,' he said, "'and give it a chance to dry while we're here in front of the fire. Don't braid it or anything. Just shake it out loose around your shoulders.' "'It's dreadfully in the way like that,' she said." when i'm sitting down there isn't room for it and that when she tried to follow his suggestion proved true it reached nearly to her knees when she stood erect now she said when she had spread it out as well as she could now may i ask a question again how did you know that i was at beach hill and that i needed saving barton saw you there last night He thought that what he saw was the ghost of a woman we knew to be dead, a woman he thought he had murdered. She looked very like you, in some ways, almost miraculously alike. Was it Irene Fournier? she asked. Yes, he said. Irene Fournier. Do you know who she was? Had you ever seen her? i only saw her once she said but i've heard of her i think she added after a little silence i think that she was my half sister Geoffrey's eyes widened at that i don't know very much about it she said my father must have been a painter was he she turned to Geoffrey do you know he nodded he fell in love i think with a peasant girl down in normandy Geoffrey nodded again i don't mean my mother claire said with a little hesitation i mean her sister i think he meant to marry her but he was called away and when he came back she was dead so then he married my mother but i think irene was his daughter too i'm not sure whether he knew about her when he married my mother or not but i know that afterward he settled some money on her she spoke in a strange guarded sort of way almost hostile the time i talked with her it was strange to see her she looked so like me so almost exactly like me. But my guardian took me away presently and asked her to come and see him. I wasn't there then, and she wouldn't tell him anything, anything that he wanted to know, except for a great deal of money. He didn't believe that she was telling the truth, so he wouldn't pay her, and she went away. Did you tell her who you were? jeffrey asked i didn't know the girl said quietly that's what we were trying to find out we spent years trying suddenly jeffrey caught his breath and his eyes lighted up was your guardian an english doctor named williamson he asked and at that she stared at him half frightened how did you know she whispered how did you know that two winters ago said jeffrey i had a studio over in paris in the same court with dr williamson and his wife and daughter some things that happened there with what you just said helped me to guess i guess you might have helped me to guess then said the girl We were badly in need of help of that sort. I wish I might. If only I'd had a little more of the courage of my convictions that winter, I might have solved some of my own mysteries and yours too. But let's go back to the beginning. The story was that you had died of smallpox in Paris. Did you have smallpox, really?" he might well ask for her skin had the velvety bloom that rarely lasts after childhood yes she answered or at least so they told me but not in paris my aunt and i had been spending the winter in one of the small towns of the midi there was a frightful epidemic of it there and about half the town died of it i got well of smallpox but when i was ready to leave the hospital and they asked me whom they should notify to come and get me i couldn't tell them i asked them what my own name was and they rummaged through a big book and decided my name must be celeste and a terribly tired doctor said i was suffering from aphasia and ought to be looked after but you must have known you weren't a french girl I exclaimed. It's funny, she said, but I didn't find that out for a long time. You see, I didn't know the name of anything. But surely, I cried, they didn't turn you out on the world like that. There was nothing else they could do. If you could have seen that town— I stayed on for a while, and helped nurse the others, partly because I was needed, but partly in the hope that whatever friends I had would come and claim me. But then I made up my mind that my friends, whoever they were, had probably been told that I had died, died and been buried the way they had to bury people during those horrible days so there was nothing to wait for they gave me a hundred francs and i went away down to nice as it happened that was all i had in the world except one or two good rings that i happened to be wearing when they took me to the pest house oh and one or two other trinkets that a doctor happened to remember were mine one of them said Geoffrey thoughtfully was a jade earring an odd jade earring once more she paled a little the look in her face was almost one of fear how can you know that she asked unless you know a great deal more i saw you once with it on he said about this time of day and year on the point royal in paris You came and stood beside me and then two gendarmes came and you went away do you remember no she said it wouldn't have been me if i was there alone at that hour it would have been the other not irene i asked puzzled no not irene she turned to Geoffrey. you could see the earring but how could you know that i had only one it was to me that jeffrey made his answer don't you see drew what it was that put us off the track it never occurred to either of us that a pair of earrings could be split we knew that crow had one we assumed that he had the pair just as i assumed that the girl i had seen on the bridge in paris had been wearing a pair because i saw she was wearing one he turned to claire i knew that unless it was a ghost girl i saw that the report of your death was wrong i thought from crow's having the earring that you had come to america and that he was in communication with you and when they told me that a portrait I had painted of you from a photograph was a picture of the girl who had been found in the ice, I believed that you had been murdered and that Dr. Crow was the murderer. I believed absolutely that you and Irene Fournier were the same person. I didn't discover my mistake until this morning. Now said i perhaps you'll tell me how you discovered that from looking at the negative barton brought from beech hill in his pocket why said jeffrey you must remember that i had never seen irene fournier nor a picture of her the photograph i painted the portrait from was of course genuine crow got it from paris just as he said but the portrait emphasized the real difference there was between the two faces to counteract the effect of it crow posed irene in the dress and photographed her and pretended to miss meredith that it was the photograph i had returned she thanked me for sending it to her the morning i talked with her i thought then that it simply meant that crow had a duplicate that he had given to her to keep from worrying the minute i saw that plate i knew it was a picture of a different person from the one i'd painted and i saw too that the thing had been retouched to make it look more like the authentic photograph and then i knew that the ghost barton had seen in the beech hill house that night was no more a ghost than the one i had seen on the bridge in paris and i knew that if miss claire meredith were alone at that house with Crow she was in mortal danger that's a long explanation miss meredith but it's the reason why we came in such a hurry and why we were nearly too late i turned to miss meredith too it wasn't very polite of me to insist on having my curiosity satisfied right in the middle of your story but i'd seen jeffrey turn away after one look at that plate and say that someone at beach hill was in danger and that there was life or death in our getting there quickly and i've been puzzling over it ever since i wish though if you aren't too tired that you'd go on and tell us the rest but the way she was looking at Geoffrey was an indication that i might have spared my apology lips a little parted eyes that were starry in their deep brightness Well, what girl wouldn't look like that at a man who was telling such a story? It wasn't until I asked her to go on with her own that she looked away. It's nothing very exciting, she began. I don't believe I ever had any real adventure until last night. I went to Nice, as I said, and pawned my rings, and then I sat down on the promenade and began to think about what I should do. A nice-looking woman was sitting at the other end of my bench, and I spoke to her, in French, of course. She said, in English, that she didn't understand, and I began, quite naturally, talking to her in English. I told her I wanted to get a position as companion, or governess, or something, but that I hadn't any references. That got me started telling her the whole story. It frightened her a little at first. It was so incredible that it seemed as if I must be trying to impose on her. But luckily her husband was a doctor, and he came along just then and questioned me, and they finally decided that I would do for their daughter. Of course, none of us knew then that there was anything queer about me, except the fact that I couldn't remember names. And by the time we did discover it well they had grown fond of me and sorry for me and wouldn't hear of my living anywhere except with them can you tell us what it was that was queer about you jeffrey asked why i used to have lapses of consciousness and wander off and do heaven knows what outlandish things dr williamson concluded that it was my former self that was doing them The girl before the smallpox, you know. But as I couldn't remember any of the things she had done when I came to, it didn't help much toward finding out who she was. The only thing to do was to follow me around and see what I did and take care that I didn't get into any serious trouble. They did that, those people, with a devotion. Her voice choked up a little at that oh i can't talk about it she said and then went on my lapses kept getting worse and longer and all of us got very much discouraged except the doctor himself he insisted that the worse they got the nearer i was to being a normal person again he said the longer and the stronger they were the more likely it was that my memory would begin coming through and by and by that really began to happen. There was a lot of argument in the family as to whether I was English or American. Mrs. Williamson and Evelyn insisted I was English, but the doctor thought I was American. I was perfectly sure that some of the places I began remembering intimately couldn't be anywhere but in America. Why did you live in that particular part of Paris? Geoffrey asked it was just a part of their kindness to me i wanted to and they noticed that when i wandered off in my old self you know i always went there so they took an apartment in that court as a matter of fact Geoffrey asked didn't you and your aunt live there before you had the smallpox the girl looked at him in simple astonishment why of course Rue Boyce and odd. and she gave the number i never put those two facts together until this instant though i knew them both independently for quite a while but the williamsons didn't have the same apartment that my aunt and i had lived in Geoffrey laughed no he said i had that one she colored vividly did i haunt you she asked that's exactly what you did said jeffrey i never saw you there but you left some pretty puzzling traces drew can tell you that story sometime he's a great yarn spinner but please go on tell us the rest there isn't much more to tell she said about what happened over there my memory kept coming back stronger and stronger all the time until at last i told them the williamsons i mean that i was perfectly competent to look after myself now and that i meant to go to america and find out who i was one of my discoveries about myself was that i could paint a little and i sold everything i painted at pretty good prices so i wasn't financially dependent on the williamsons although of course i owed them a debt that money couldn't repay at all they hated to have me go especially mrs williamson and evelyn and begged me to let the meredith girl lie quiet in her grave down in the south of france but i couldn't Fond as I am of them, there was a, well, a call of the blood, it seemed, that drew me. You'd remembered your name by that time, said Geoffrey. But that wasn't the name you went by. No, she said. I stuck to the hospital name for a while, Celeste Baru, until that got to seeming ridiculous. And then... As the Williamsons wanted me to, I took their last name. They called me a cousin or something, and for my first name, I had my own. Claire. It was engraved on the inside of one of my rings. Then pursued Geoffrey. It was as Miss Claire Williamson that you came to this country. She nodded. You came alone? He asked of course there wasn't any earthly reason why i shouldn't or at least there didn't seem to be i landed in new york yesterday yesterday it seems years since then what did you do with your luggage Geoffrey asked rather suddenly she looked at him in frank amusement you ask the oddest questions she said but I did do something odd with it. I didn't bring it through the customs. You see, we landed just at five o'clock. I hadn't sent any word to my aunt that I was coming. I couldn't be sure that my handwriting would be the same, or that she would remember it, and I felt that her first thought on getting a letter from me would be that I was an impostor. I thought that if I could just walk in and speak to her, that that would be much simpler i had set my heart somehow on doing it that night you hadn't any enmity against her then said Geoffrey. no she said in frank surprise why should i have i am perfectly sure the hospital authorities told her i was dead for anything i know she may have had the disease herself in jeffrey's mind i am sure as well as in mine was the thought of that pin-pricked photograph and a momentary speculation as to what would have happened if the girl had carried out her plan and walked in upon her aunt as she had intended so as soon as we got ashore she went on i walked straight through the customs barrier with nothing but my purse jumped into a taxi, and went to my aunt's townhouse. How could you be sure of finding her there? Geoffrey asked. I knew she was still alive. I'd seen occasional references to her in the Paris Herald, and I knew she'd never move or do anything like that. So I went straight to the old address that I remembered. Of course, I knew that there was a possibility that she'd be at Beach Hill, when the taxi drove up to the house, there was another car standing there, a big six-cylinder runabout, and while I was paying my driver, Dr. Crow opened the door and came out. I knew him at once, though I hadn't seen him since I was ten or twelve years old, and I might not have known him if I had seen him anywhere else, but I called him by name without any hesitation. He knew me, too, yes said jeffrey i should think he would i see she said thoughtfully because of irene you mean we both nodded he told me that my aunt was at beech hill and he was just starting for there himself he wanted me to go straight up there with him he said it wouldn't take so very long in that high-powered car of his and he would give me a fine spin it didn't seem such a wild thing to do as he suggested it remember he's my cousin we had known each other as children or when i was a child at least so i said i'd go he asked you didn't he Geoffrey interrupted when you'd landed and what you'd done since she nodded naturally and what you'd done with your luggage he asked that too she said you didn't stop for any dinner said Geoffrey. you got out of town as fast as you could but somewhere about nine o'clock you stopped at a little village and left the car and went to a lunch wagon and got something to eat you couldn't have deduced that from anything said the girl after a long look into his face you must have seen that.' "'Exactly,' he said. "'Do you remember another car that was pulled up on the same cross street?' "'We were in it. I caught just a glimpse of your face, and of Crow's as you turned the corner. But, well, I'd have staked my word then that you were dead. I thought the fancied resemblance of that face to Claire Meredith's, and of the man's to Crow—' was just a trick of fancy if crow had been alone i should have recognized him you see he concluded soberly my vanity of opinion might have cost you your life i can't see yet why it didn't miss meredith wasn't at beech hill was she crow had you all to himself there he'd even got the caretaker out of the way why did he delay why didn't he act quicker What was the man's name who broke in? She asked. Barton, he's one of the men who broke in, said Geoffrey. I think that's what saved my life. One of the things. Wouldn't you rather not talk about it now? Geoffrey urged. We're terribly interested, but we're not inhuman, really. Don't you want to wait until some other day? She shook her head i want to tell it now she said and then perhaps not tell it again ever after we'd bought our sandwiches and started on again dr crow began telling me for the first time about my aunt's mental condition he said she had lucid periods and periods that weren't lucid at all when it was dangerous for her to see people impossible really for anyone to be with her except himself I felt a vague discomfort about my journey then, felt that if he'd been playing fair he'd have told me that before we started, but it seemed foolish to insist on going back, so we went on. It wasn't till we got inside the gates that he told me his plan. He said he'd take me up to his wing of the house and leave me there to make myself comfortable and freshen up from the journey and perhaps have a cup of coffee or something while he went and saw my aunt then he said if she was all right he'd take me into her if not i could wait until morning and see her then she was more herself in the daytime he said i didn't like that at all but i assented to it i thought of course there'd be servants there possibly some old ones who remembered me, and that I could take matters more or less into my own hands. He drove me up in the car, not to the big door, but to one at the side, a wing that I didn't remember, though I remembered the rest of the house perfectly the moment I saw it. He let me in with a latch key instead of ringing. There didn't seem to be any servants anywhere. I spoke of that, but he laughed in a perfectly natural way and said that everybody went to bed with the chickens out here, and I knew that was so. There was nothing I could do without making a scene, and even that would probably not have done me any good if his intentions were sinister. And of course, if they were all right, it would only make me look foolish. He showed me into a little dressing room where I could freshen up after my long ride, and when I came out, he had a cup of hot coffee and some sandwiches all ready for me. He said he didn't want anything himself, but that he'd go and make his regular evening visit to my aunt, and that, if she was all right, he'd come and get me. He was gone a long time, but at last I heard footsteps in one of the downstairs corridors. I thought he was coming back, but the next thing i heard i didn't like that was somebody letting himself into the study downstairs with a key the grate of that key sounded unpleasant somehow made me feel as if i had been a prisoner i supposed of course it was he down there and i expected every minute that he'd come up but he didn't come and at last i went to the head of the stairs and looked down and then i saw that the room wasn't lighted whoever was down there was working in the dark i don't pretend that i wasn't frightened but after all it only makes your fright worse to keep still and wonder what you're frightened about so i lighted a candle and went down i saw a man down there that i knew wasn't dr crow searching through some papers by the light of an electric torch i was fairly in the room before i saw that because of course the light of my own candle was shining in my eyes if i had seen it a little sooner i shouldn't have gone in but he heard me and turned around and gave one look at me it was the most horribly terrified look i ever saw in a man's face he made a little clicking sound in his throat, and then turned and ran. He bolted through a door, a different door than the one he'd come in by, and left unlocked behind him, and for quite a while I heard him running this way and that through the passages. I thought of calling out for help or something, and then, quite suddenly, I decided not to, and I decided too that i wouldn't go back to the room where dr crow had left me i'd go over to the other part of the house the part i knew in the hope of finding somebody somebody else than the doctor so i walked down the corridor the burglar had come in by and hunted around and found myself at last in a part of the house that i recognized i wandered around for a while And then I made up my mind to go straight to my aunt's sitting-room if she were at beech hill at all, even if she weren't in a condition to see me herself, she'd surely have a maid or nurse or companion or somebody I could go to. I got a little confused in the passages, but finally I found my way there. The room was empty, and somehow it looked as if she weren't using it any more. And when I went into her bedroom, that was empty too. I had got back to the sitting room when a puff of wind from somewhere blew my candle out. I hadn't a match and, well, I was about at the end of my resources, or I thought I was. I didn't feel equal anyway to exploring that horrible house any further in the dark, for I was beginning to have a horror of it. I just sat down on a couch in the corner and waited. It was storming then. The rain was roaring down furiously, so that I couldn't hear anything else, till pretty soon I felt another puff of wind, like the one that had blown out my candle, as if someone had opened a door somewhere. And then... I saw that a man was standing in the room. I hadn't heard him come in, but it seemed as if he had come out of the clothes closet. I didn't cry out. I don't often do that. I suppose it was partly fright that held me perfectly still and almost kept me from breathing. Like a nightmare, you know. He stood there for a minute, perfectly still, too, as if he didn't know which way to go. And then there came a blinding blaze of lightning, and I saw who it was. It was Dr. Crow. He had a revolver in his hand, but that wasn't the terrifying thing about him. It was the look in his face. If ever you could see murder in a man's eyes and in his horrible, savage smile, it was in his face then. As soon as the lightning flashed into the room, he began looking around, rather slowly and carefully, but his eyes hadn't got around me when the lightning went out and everything was black again, blacker, of course, to his eyes and mine than it had been before. He stood there waiting for the next flash. When it came, he would see me. I wanted to use the darkness to run away in but i couldn't move i had to sit there and then before another flash could come we heard a shot out in the grounds somewhere and the sound of a man running plunging through the underbrush and at that he darted across the room and out of the door i don't know how long i sat there before i could get strength enough to stand up again when I did, I felt my way out of the room and down the stairs, and finally, following a little breeze that kept blowing in my face, I found a door that had been left unlatched and that let me out of doors. The rain had almost stopped by then, and I could hear a motorboat throbbing along out in the river. I hurried down the drive as fast as I could. The one thing I wanted to do was to get away from Beech Hill. To put miles and miles between the dreadful place and me, and then go and ask for shelter somewhere. But long before I got to the park gates, I heard someone coming. I left the driveway and hid among the trees. The sky was getting brighter then, and it was almost moonlight. Anyway, it was light enough for me to see who it was that was coming. It was Dr. Crow again. He was still carrying his revolver in his hand. I waited quite a while among the trees for him to get by and then i went on to the gates i found them locked and i knew i couldn't possibly get over the wall the only way out was the river i knew that dr crow would go back to the house and search it and when he found i wasn't there he'd lock it up and begin searching the grounds so i went down to the river and waded in as far as i could and then well i kept on i am a pretty good swimmer but i've never swum in heavy clothes before but really i didn't care much what happened whether i ever felt land under my feet or not i just wanted to get away from that horrible horrible place the current carried me along pretty well and presently i found myself wading out again here on hog island she had gone pretty white during the last part of the narrative for myself i felt guilty that we'd let her tell it even though she had wanted to jeffrey reached over and laid a steadying hand on her shoulder our adventures are over now he said everything's come out all right We'll brighten up the fire a bit, and that boat of ours should be coming back before long. But he, he, she whispered, and nodded mutely in the direction of Beech Hill. He's still there. Never mind him, said Geoffrey. We'll attend to him presently. We'll brighten up the fire a little, and isn't there a drop or two of that brandy left? You're very good to me she said unsteadily and then suddenly she reached out and caught one of his hands in both of hers but please don't go away never mind the fire i don't want to be left alone somehow somehow the old fear is all coming back after all said i it only takes one of us to get the firewood i rose somewhat stiffly i'll admit gave them a cheerful nod and tramped off into the thicket she didn't seem to mind my going somehow though she seemed grateful enough over my offer to replenish the fire i wasn't sorry to tramp around a little and get some of the stiffness out of my legs and i went rather farther afield than a search for firewood made necessary before i came back i decided i'd go down to the bank at the lower end of the island and see if richards and the police boat weren't in sight anywhere but before that i wanted to look at beech hill and the boat landing i thought it possible that i might catch a glimpse of crow i suppose it was the thought of him that made me pick my way rather quietly through the undergrowth and down the slope toward the river's edge. From where I stood, I commanded a pretty good stretch of the Beach Hill shoreline, and my eyes were busy with the shadows that still lingered in the thickets above, when something, I suppose it must have been a sound, made me look around. Just past the end of a little point, here on Hog Island, I saw projecting out the stern of a little boat— a river skiff. I went toward it automatically. We wanted a boat, and here was one come ashore, one that had drifted here likely enough. For all that, I moved cautiously, and my footsteps in the soft sand didn't make a sound. I rounded the little point, clear of an overgrowing bush, and saw that the boat's skulls were still in it, not unshipped. But the thing that engraved itself on my mind the thing i can see yet and that still brings back a certain horror was the trailing end of the painter tied around the forward thwart i stared at it for a breathless instant then looked up and saw crow crouching there revolver in hand He saw me at the same instant, smiled wickedly, and raised his revolver. There wasn't time even for a shout. I ducked my head, plunged at him. He wasn't more than six feet away, got a tight grip around his waist, and we went down together. Then there was a blinding flash and silence. End of chapter 20